Welcome to the Human Design Collective Podcast, where we explore this system as a map of our unique potential, from the mundane to the mystical. If you'd like to dive deeper into your design, we invite you to check out our course and workshop offerings at courses.humandesigncollective.com. Today's episode features Andrea Reichel Wolf, a molecular geneticist who met Human Design and Ra Uruhu in 1997. She's been a full-time analyst and teacher since 2002 and is the principal teacher of the differentiation degree program with the International Human Design School. Today we discuss how human design came into her life, the development of the substructure knowledge, and her perspective on working with the human design system and transit influences as we approach 2027. She's a 3-6 emotional generator born on the cross of the unexpected, who is scientifically oriented to the most cutting-edge aspects of human design without losing sight of the fundamentals. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Andrea. We're so happy to have you on the show today and really excited to get to talk about your interests, your expertise, and your experience with human design. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, you're absolutely welcome. We wanted to start by finding out how human design came into your life and what the early part of your experiment was like. Um, Anything you'd like to share about the beginnings for you? Well, it's now 25 years since uh, I came into human design. And that was in 97. At that time, I was studying molecular genetics, was doing my PhD. And in order to be open to that kind of experience, there was an event that was absolutely necessary. And that event happened, um, it was end of 96, uh, beginning of 97, where I went to Africa and I had contact with voodoo. Now, prior to that, I was just believing only in those things that you can really prove. But uh, experiencing voodoo in Africa, that was something that, first of all, I thought I was hallucinating, but uh, not everybody can hallucinate. (laughs) And, you know, Africa, I mean, it's full of voodoo and all this crazy stuff. And when you participate in such a thing, that, that really transforms you. And that was the reason why I was open to human design. Otherwise, I would have said, uh, leave me alone. I mean, I don't want to have to deal with uh, such kind of esoteric stuff. But uh, that opened me up. In Vienna, we had a um, African percussion group. And somebody introduced me to human design and said, would you like to have uh, something about... Uh, your life that you might be interested in, meaning I could help you with your problems, basically, because there were huge problems after coming back. Because if you were a scientist and then you had contact with voodoo, I mean, every the world is upside down. This lady told me, I can offer you human design and give me your birth data and I'm going to show you. First time um, when I heard that, I said, no, no, please don't, no, not any bullshit anymore. <laughs> um, no, thank you. Um, but... Uh, then she was really insisting and I said, eh, what the fuck? It doesn't matter. Yeah. And then she told me things that nobody could really know. Not even my mother could know. And then she said, you know, um, human design has something to do with genetics. And you know, my open ego said, ha, I prove to be wrong. And then I'm at Ra. And at that time it was in July after, um, insisting a couple of times to come to that uh, introduction. So in a way, it was really perfect based on type strategy and authority because I'm an emotional generator. I met Ra there 
in the living room. It was really strange. Ten people in the living room, Ra giving a free introductionary talk. And prior to that, I was quite early there and uh, I met him first and he just didn't even ignore me. I mean, typical manifesto, arrogant as he was at the time. And I said, should I leave? I mean, why should I listen to such a guy? I mean, arrogant, um, ignorant. And then I was uh, convinced to stay. And yeah, that was the moment where I really got infected. I mean, it's a serious disease since 25 years. That's a good way of describing it. <laughs> it's a serious disease. Yeah, and uh, from that moment onward, I realized that staying in science um, is not appropriate for me anymore. At that time, a very it was a very short education to be a human design analyst. And uh, finishing my PhD, in 99, I also got to be a human design analyst and uh, was a teacher in 2000. Yeah, and that was uh, the early experience that I had with human design. And you can't imagine what was human design like at that time. So many people did not even know what it is. And uh, they know me uh, or they knew me as a geneticist. So they were thinking I was designing humans, because it's called human design. <laughs> I said, no, it's the opposite. I analyze people's design. At that time, nobody had uh, the feeling that human design could be something that could really flourish, could really be a knowledge that can impact a lot of people. I mean, we were just a handful of freaks at that time in Vienna. And I was so convinced. I mean, this was something where my 2838 was really fighting for. I was so convinced that human design, I can make my living there. Everybody was laughing at me at that time. But as uh, you know, I have this channel of discovery, mm -hmm. succeeding where others are failing. And this became true where in 2002, I was the first human design professional that exclusively earned the money only with human design. No one else did that in, uh, in Austria at that time. And that was in a way very, very pleasing, very satisfying for me. And you know, there were some comments from my parents. I mean, you don't need to stay um, outside and live under a bridge, you know? Uh, you can come home if you don't earn money. And I never ever was in any doubt that it wouldn't work out. I don't know where it came from, but I was absolutely convinced that I could make my living. But to get so, to such a position that I'm today, yeah, this I didn't expect. So even in that first meeting, when your impression of Ra's personality was sort of his presentation, there's still the information grabbed you. Yes. I mean, he was really talking the truth. I mean, he was uh, talking about centers at the time. It was a nice introduction about centers. And at that time, you know, type strategy and authority was not as obvious as it is today. It was, uh, he explained it, but very differently. But when he was doing the introduction about the centers and when he was talking about the emotional sense and the sacral sense, I felt he was directly talking to me. And I said, yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah. He was quite a man that was quite impactful. Yeah. There's something, I think, the way culture is today with, 
you know, with social media, with optics and presentation of all kinds of things. It's fascinating to me to hear that piece of your story where even though the, the presentation or the package, you know, that came through him was not necessarily appealing, that there was mm-hmm. still such a compelling truth in it that you, you couldn't deny. Yeah. 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 I mean, this was really uh, the comment that I had afterwards is I said, this man is an ignorant asshole, but uh, what he what he's presenting is magic. And of course, um, I got to know Ra in all kinds of facets. I have to admit the very first impression that he was an ignorant asshole. Um, no, <laughs> I could not uh, stay with that opinion because it was quite the opposite. Yeah. How did that shift develop? You just got to know him, got to see him in different settings. It was, I guess, that he realized that I'm a geneticist and he knew that it had something to do with genetics. And I have presented him the correlations of uh, the hexagrams, the codons and amino acids. And during the teachings, I always was pointing out the scientific aspects of it. So I guess that was the reason why he had some closer discussions. You know, the the most interesting discussions with Ra was not in class. And it's all his uh, Ibiza meetings or teachings live in Austria. It was always after class or in between classes in the breaks. Yeah. And we had a lot of chats and he told me many, many private things and many things that he never taught. But he told me, you know, I don't teach that, but I'll let you know. That was the reason how I got the feeling that he got interested and I, I got the feeling that, yeah, he is not such an ignorant asshole. <laughs> he has, I mean, that that what I came to uh, to grips with was He's a manifester and he needed to behave like this. You know, that was his personality. But this is something that you needed to learn as you got ed- educated by human, uh, by the human design system. Yeah. And he was, he was always so, so funny. This is something that uh, uh, Jacqueline told me. You know, we were talking uh, right after Ra was dead and, you know, there's, he started a DD program at the time. He started race sociology at the time and nobody knew how to continue. But he said, you know, um, you and Alok, you were the only ones that could continue both of those programs. And he said, you know, Andrea, you cannot believe how often you were present at our, uh, at our tables. And I said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, you know, always when we had a chit chat about human design, he always mentioned you. And he was always re- referring to you. And he said, he, he was really adoring you. I said, yeah, you're kidding. He said, no, no. Yeah. So that was something that was quite fascinating. Got to know that after he has died, that I was regularly part of the family communication. It sounds like that, I guess at some point, he started kind of leaning on you and you kind of developed more of a relationship where you were collaborating and discussing and yes. kind of unpacking yes. this knowledge that he had based on your your background and your expertise that you had come in with. Is is that kind of how it was? Yeah, yeah. And there was a special moment in 2007 where he was the very last time teaching in Austria at what we called the mill. It was a, a very old, rotten, yeah, stinky meal uh, where uh, some seminars were organized. And it was a very, very strange um, event because 
we called it the summer school, the Austrian summer school, and Ra was invited. And after Ra, I started my teachings. I did several uh, different classes. One was called the Neutrino by Verse. And when I arrived, Ra was still there. And I said, hey, what are you doing? Normally you fly off after class. He said, you know what? I booked the wrong flight. I'm just flying home the next day. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And I said, you know, when I was preparing the neutrino bivers, I was contemplating on something that I contemplate only during summertime each year, and that was the black book and the juxtaposition theory, where he mentioned the DNA and the RNA world. I knew that there was a correlation between the base of uh, the DNA and uh, the base, what we see in human design, that's the last, uh, first structure underneath the line. And I knew there was a correlation. And in, in, in preparing that class, I contemplated on it. And for all of a sudden, it was there. I knew how to do that. And uh, the result was that there were two different kinds of constructs. There needed to be different kinds of constructs, but I didn't know how and how different they were. Yeah? It was obvious because he was always teaching the personality side, but never the design side. And he was always saying that design and personality at the base level is the same. And I showed him my base-base correlation in the morning. And I said, you know, I have something to discuss with you. Just I'm informing you. You tell me when you have time. And then he said, show me. And then I was explaining it to him. It was handwritten. And I said, you know, these are the correlations. And that was the result that we have two kinds of constructs. And he was listening to and no reaction. And I stand up and walked into my room and he was running after me and was grabbing the paper and said, let's have a look. And then he looked at it and then he went away. <laughs> I said, okay, I started teaching. And then in the, in the break, it was really funny. Uh, someone told me who was not at, at, the, at the course, he said, you know, Ra was waiting at the door that you were um, getting out of the, the, the seminar room. And he grabbed me and said, I'm going to explain you something. You're right, two kinds of constructs. And then he was rattling off, you know, uh, all of his juxtaposition theory. And uh, then I needed to teach the same after, after lunch. He said with me and he uh, was describing and sketching things. And that was the moment. And I, got, and I don't know if anybody else could really get the way how he was thinking, the way how he was, um, yeah, how his mind really worked. I mean, I was, it was deeply, deeply impressing. And he said, yeah, now we have the full juxtaposition theory. And then he said, you know, I, I want your paper. And I said, yeah, I, that's handwritten. I, I just want to have a copy, the rest you can have. And then he published um, in August 2007 to the human design community a letter where he was describing the process. And by the way, that's on my, on my website. It's called Informing. And uh, where he said uh, that basically uh, a student, in a way, gave him a hint. And then he was teaching in December 2007 the new juxtaposition theory. And then further, I, de I developed uh, the, um, what you have been through with me, uh, John, in the DD program, the correlation of the basis and then the net result why we have the design crystal as an instable construct and why the personality crystal is a stable construct and why 
the design crystal is only incarnating once, which Ra always told us, and why the personality crystal can incarnate over and over again. Something that I have developed with him and I was always sharing, you know, this is the, uh, the construct, this is how I see it, and that's uh, the conclusion that I have. And that was, that was a wonderful work. And of course, from, I guess, uh, September 2007 onwards, whenever you're going to uh, look at the courses and uh, all the manuscripts of the courses, you're going to see that he had two different constructs in terms of the basis of the design and the basis of personality. Before, when you look at all the transcripts and all the courses, it was always the same. And uh, the event that made it happen was that we that I had the base-base correlation and he draw his conclusion. And that was wonderful. Yeah. And that was, I guess, the moment where we really come very close together and uh, we had a very, very uh, intense back and forth uh, communication uh, at the scientific level. Yeah, like, you know, this, that's my hypothesis and what do you think? It was wonderful. Yeah. That kind of touches on something I've always been a little bit curious about with Ra and the knowledge that he received. It seems like, you know, he got this download over, you know, eight days and then he spent like the next couple of decades unpacking it, refining it, explaining it, teaching it. But it was kind of an evolving work in progress from, from what I can tell. Is that correct in terms of what you saw and experienced with him that he had these internal points of reference, but then he would somehow relate it to the outside world or genetics or biology and then kind of like fill in the gaps? How did that work? I had the feeling that all the knowledge was somehow there, but he knew, and that was his brilliance, he knew exactly when to release what kind of knowledge. Yeah, he was always waiting when students were ready, when the world was ready. And then, of course, there was always filling the gaps. And he said, and you know that with the encounter, he got the second personality crystal. And the second personality crystal, uh, I, was, I was asking him, I mean, how does that work? And he said, you know, I'm, I'm somehow contacting it. And it was like a yes or a no. But what I have seen over time, it was not just a yes and a no. And that's just a personal experience. I might be totally wrong here. But if you are going to look at the film encounter, and I know these guys that were uh, videoing um, the film encounter, there is something like Sarah sang a lullaby. Yeah? When you look at his eyes, it's not him. And then, you know, they were, these people were asking me, can you please repeat that? And he couldn't do it anymore yeah? because this crystal was just there for a moment. Mm -hmm. And in terms of teaching, I mean, I might be totally wrong, but especially in the online teachings, when he was developing something new, my body was... 150% attentive. I was really sucking in the knowledge, like PHS or rape psychology. And there was a massive information at the beginning. And then I felt that my body was just getting up and doing some, you know, paperwork. And, and then I felt that in a way, what he was downloading for 25 minutes or for 20 minutes, um, he was trying to explain it to himself to the students what was going to happen yeah and that was in a way something that my body said okay i got the information yes it's nice that you explain it but uh i already get it yeah and that was always the feeling and i had 
I always had that conversation with long-term students or with uh, colleagues of mine at that time. I said, you know, I have always these very strange moments where I just get up and do something and my body is just moving and I hear the information, but I have the feeling the information is already there. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's true. I already experienced that as well. So, I mean, we might be totally wrong and crazy, but I guess that within this very first, very compressed information that Ra was given to us, I guess that was you know, the second personality crystal downloading or in a way uh, giving the information to us students. It's just a feeling that I have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I can, I can see what you're saying for sure. Mm. So would love to talk with you more about substructure because mm. we know that's your, your vast expertise in addition to everything else in human design. But I feel pulled to ask you about how, because especially now, the substructure information in human design is so sexy and popular and very popularized. Um, but there's so much at the surface. There's so much depth at the surface that takes a long time, I think, to really internalize and work with and experiment with and get embodied with. So I'm curious about how your discovery of human design and your early process with it, what it showed you about being emotional. Can you share something about that? I'm just uh, telling you a little story about uh, Andrea being uh, tried to to be a professional horse rider. And that was when I was young. I had uh, twice in my life the opportunity, opportunity to, to become a, a professional horse rider, which I didn't. And I'm very happy about that um, because having this as a, uh, doing these sports as an amateur, um, you can never lose passion. Yeah, Being a professional, there's always the chance that you lose uh, passion. So um, one of my trainers, she was really fascinated about the style, how I do the horse riding. But she always said, you know, you have a serious problem, Andrea. Uh, you don't perform in a way so that it is, she called it, you can't reproduce your performance. It's so deeply dependent how emotional you are. And that doesn't work. If you would like to be a professional rider, uh, you can't afford emotions. So that means uh, one day I had performance and highest grade and uh, was uh, really a top of top. And uh, it could be even the, second, the next day I was one of the last in competition. And that's, of course, my emotion, uh, emotionality. So what I tried is uh, to, in a way, flatten the emotions. I didn't know what that really was, but I tried to flatten it. It never worked out. Yeah. And I was deeply frustrated so that I had my, my wave business. And I was always uh, telling to my friends, I said, you know, I think I have a serious problem because I can't have a continuity in the way how I'm going to perform and the way how I'm living. I mean, I always have this high up and, and low downs, especially with the 59.6, it can be very high and very low. And I thought that was a serious problem. And I was so lucky meeting human design where Ra told me, that's okay. That's my life. I'm emotional. I have highs, I have, I have lows and just accept that. And that was wonderful for me because then I could really live it. But of course the difficulties is you can't make decisions in the moment. 
And this is something that I realized very early also in my life, especially when I had to, to make a decision about my um, PhD, uh, which uh, science group should I join? Because at that time we had an assessment center. I was the best of the assessment center, so therefore I could choose. But of course I choose wrongly. I choose with my mind and therefore was deep frustrated. But what I realized that I can't choose in the moment. And they told me, you have to choose today and now. And I said, no, I can't. We give you until the next morning. And I said, I don't know whether I can make the decision about the next morning. And then it was noon and they were really angry with me. I said, you are the best in the assessment center and you're unable to make a decision to which group you would like to join. And of course I make a decision and I knew I was emotional, but it was the wrong decision because the mind was making its decision. Still, the emotionality was there. And I always had a problem to make instant decisions. People told me that I have a problem. I, it's easy to make a decision. I mean, you, you think about it and you know what's good for you and then you make a decision. What's the problem? Yeah. And now I know it was never a problem. I, I think you've summarized the core gift of human design right there. <laughs> it's just to say, <laughs> you think you have a problem, but you don't. No, it's okay. perfect as you are. Relax. Right. You're fine. <laughs> it's going to be all right. <laughs> this is something that I see when I, when I work with clients. Yeah, They're so released. I said, yeah, I always thought this is not okay, what, what I'm doing and what, how I behave. And then they realize, hey, that's perfect. Yeah. The only thing that's not perfect is, is the world how the world is going to deal with it but it's the world's problem it's not never your problem yeah yeah from there if we start to look at everything that developed in the system around substructure and we know that came in later that's how it appeared to me as well just looking back at the development of the teaching that it seems like ra sort of meted things out as people were ready and as it was time to bring in the next layer the next piece can you say a bit about how the substructure information developed? Because I, I believe Ra passed right in the midst of when it was sort of being formed, when the program was being formed. And by the way, the very first teaching about the substructure was 25 years ago in this kind of mill where he tried to teach it in the correct way because we're always describing the matrix of a human being upside down. Yeah, we always look at the surface and then we go down. And of course we know that it's building up from base, tone, color. Then we have this quantum illusion that is built by the magnetic monopole, design crystal and personality crystal frequencies. And he tried to teach it from base. And at that time, no one was ready. After this teaching experience, he said, I'm never going to make that kind of experience again. I'm never going to teach the substructures from the base up. So then later on, he was teaching from the color to the tone to the base. And that was his first trial. And then a couple of years later, he was teaching it in America. At that time, it was uh, the other way around. And the next time that he was touching it, was in 2003 in, in the villa in Ibiza, where we had, where we had our uh, meetings. Um, he was talking about immortality and basis. Later on in 2004, he, inter he introduced um, Palatone and at the PHS and at the rave psychology side. 
there was a very early trial um, to teach the structures underneath the lines um, also in 2001, which I forgot, and that was in Vienna. But at that time, he was saying that you can't grasp your color. It's never possible because it's a structure underneath the line. Of course, now we know it is different. And that was the time in 2004 where it really made a difference. Yeah, where he was really saying something about the colors and how we can really grasp it and how we can really see it. It was really changing a lot. Yeah, from you have no idea what your color is, you can't even grasp it up to what we have now. And in 2005, he was starting to teach PHS and race psychology when he opened up his online international school. And that was the very first, let's say, well-structured and from his side, well-developed program. Anything else before that, he had given some of the little courses in, in our Ibiza meetings in, in, two, in 2004, 2005. But uh, you could see there was uh, always nice trials of him, but there was no continuity there. But then he opened up the three years training of PHS and three years training of race psychology in 2005. And later on, he realized, and that was in 2010, that there's a lot of redundancy about these programs. And then he developed the DD program, which he never taught until the end. He just was teaching two, two, uh, one and a half semesters and then he died. And then Alok and I have taken, been, uh, taken over and uh, finished his very first teaching. And then I continued at the IHDS with a TD program. I mean, obviously, you've been an integral part of, of developing that program as it's taught now. And I know when I started in human design in 2009, it was very difficult to have any access to information mm. at all. I don't yep. think I really interacted with it all for the first seven years, really. Given everything that you know now and all the teaching that you and and the fact that now the knowledge is everywhere, <laughs> um, can be found by almost yeah. anyone, what do you see as the healthiest way to go about interacting with the different levels of information in human design? I know that uh, the informations about, you know, the four steps of transformation, the variables, yeah, uh, so first of all, people always mix it up. The four steps of transformations are not the variables. That's something that they always mix up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, that makes uh, things a little bit more complicated because um, people don't realize the difference first. Second, uh, it was clearly stated in 2008 where we had our closing of PHS and race psychology and where I did a field study about with 60 people, nine months. And the discussions that I had with Ra, it was obvious that uh, the knowledge of race psychology and PHS should be only and only worked in the so-called process work or coaching process. And this is always the very first statement. What I do when I teach the DD program is don't do readings. Because what I've seen when people get a reading, I mean, there's always this misinterpretation. Like with one of my uh, of the clients where someone said in the PHS reading, you need to eat cold. The interpretation was out of the fridge. It doesn't matter what kind of temperature we have outside. Then she was showering cold and she got really sick. Yeah, because her interpretation of cold was um, ice cold and from the fridge. And we know what cold is uh, today. 
So there's so many things that uh, can be misinterpreted. And uh, this implementation of the PHS and the rape psychology side is something that takes time. And it needs to be taken in baby steps. Then it can be reliably and healthy implemented into your life. Anything else, there's always the high risk that you damage your body, that you damage your psyche. And if you implement it successfully with just having an add-on information, I congratulate everybody and said that was good luck that you had. Yeah, but I've seen being a third line that uh, so many misunderstandings after reading uh, can and will happen. So the healthiest way is to find a certified DD practitioner and to work with a DD practitioner. And only do that when you are really in your experiment. So that means that you reliably, really reliably have implemented type strategy and authority. If you haven't do that, haven't done that, um, that makes things really complicated because the foundation of correct eating of the way how you're going to see the world, the way how you're going to work with your mind is type strategy and authority. And if it does, that doesn't work, the other information is just feeding the not self mind. And that in a way creates a huge mess. And I know so many people think I'm just uh, talking bullshit here. Yeah, because it's so sexy and I would be someone who is just want to earn money with people. And I just want to keep that as a secret. Yeah, yeah. They, these are the things that, that they get to read and get to hear. And I always say, yeah, you can get the information from somebody else, but not from me. I don't want to be responsible if something gets, gets wrong. I don't know how many things can and will go wrong being a third line. Yeah. So that's the way how I see it and not as an add on to a reading. Yeah, have a couple of readings or maybe an LYD or foundation courses, um, work on the surface first and then take the next step. That's my recommendation. So I want to be clear about this point because it sounds like what you're saying and because I know that there are a lot of people who will promote the idea that if you want to be really healthy, you need to go after your proper eating style radically and emphatically. And it sounds like you're saying you're recommending that it we actually go into it once we're really clear with strategy and authority, but also gradually. Is that what you're saying? Mm, the implementation of the dietary regimen should be should be as radical as possible. But uh, when uh, I'm talking about the information, yeah, you can't, in a way, get every information at once because you need to experiment radically with, let's say, color. Then you know what your color is and your dietary regimen. Then we're going to work on the tone because only then you're going to recognize your co cognitive potential. If you do not eat correctly, you never get access to your correct cognitive potential. And there are always the steps and the, re and, and the steps for, uh, at, the, at the surface level where you're going to recognize that the deconditioning is way easier. Then you're going to recognize that even type strategy and authority works way better because the cognitive potential is guiding type strategy and authority. And with a dietary regimen, you're going to open up 
the cognitive potential. That means the guidance for type strategy and authority is more precise. Yeah. So there is this kind of radicality there, but um, it needs to be implemented first, then we get the next information, then we get the next step, and it's in a way a process where you like having a flower. Yeah, it doesn't open at once. Yeah, there is this uh, slowly opening up, especially for roses. Yeah, it takes a time, and that's uh, you get the information, and then the rose starts to, to blossom, and it takes time, and that's the process. Yeah, because then you're we should never forget the moment that we're going to give the information to clients. The very first jump is the not self mind is always arguing, I can't do that. Like with my diet, con uh, consecutive diet, uh, they're going to say, I, I can't eat one thing at a time. That's impossible. And the mind has all the arguments. And in the coaching process, you're going to help them to let go of that not self mind. But it takes some time and it needs to have some empathy from the DD practitioner. Because otherwise you have a trial for two days and then you skip it and you have another trial for two days. But if you have somebody that has what we call bedside manners and take you by the hand and guide you social step by step through all the difficulties that might be there, then you can really implement it successfully at the end. That takes time. Yeah? And it's not a one-time shot. Never, ever. That kind of brings up one of the things I really liked about your DDP course and the way you taught it and holistic analysis as well is that you were always kind of bringing it back to type strategy and authority or looking at things in terms of, of the whole, the, mm -hmm. the big picture. We were going down deep into the substructure, getting into all of these details, but you had a consistent and really nice way of bringing it back and saying, okay, we're dealing with a projector, for example, or we're dealing with a manifester. And I think that's something that happens a lot or, well, that I'm seeing a lot out there in social media and different human design conversations that are going on where there's you lose the forest for the trees in a sense that people come in and they get so focused on variable or something on a tonal level. And maybe they've only been into human design for like a year and a half. And I'm just past year seven and I'm mm -hmm. still working out the invitation as a projector. Mm -hmm. There's deeper and deeper layers of the onion that you can peel or unpack. And I think that that's something that just happens is this forest for the trees thing. Yeah, that's the big misunderstanding. Yeah. And there's always the misunderstanding that um, we as practitioners uh, hide something or want to earn money. This is the most arguments that I heard. And I said, you know, I'm, earn, I'm earning way enough money. I don't, I, it's not necessary, but I know the benefits of it. And of course it takes time. And of course uh, you have to pay my time. That, that's for sure. Yeah. Everybody has to pay rents and their cars and you can't give it for free. I'm curious about in this realm, um, especially because you have a research background, what are the areas of design where you would love to see more research or more data being gathered or more uh, exploration from people that are working with the knowledge at this level? It would be in race psychology and, and PHS, of course, mm -hmm. because I, I still think it doesn't matter how many students I've already had and how many are already certified. I think we're still in the pioneer area. You know, we, we're not really um, having enough uh, data, enough research. Yeah, there's so many things that you can put in a way the spotlight on and go deep. And that's, of course, one of the reasons why Ra wanted us to 
the diploma thesis because he knew that he was just scratching the surface yeah, from what he was teaching and he had, hadn't had enough time to go through every detail. That's always why I have to discuss it with my students. I said, you're going to focus on something that uh, you would like to specialize on. And there are so many areas that you would like to specialize. Yeah, these areas are, let's say, the least researched on. That's my feeling. Yeah. It will be just regurgitated. You know, you have tone one that means. Yeah, but nobody does the research to it. And of course, I would love to go to do some research, especially uh, doing genetics and, and human design. But to be honest, I don't have the time uh, because my priority is in teaching. And the research is always for me secondary, although I'm really interested in. But I guess I'm more gifted in teaching than doing the, re the real research. That's the feeling that I have. Yeah. So it's a fascinating time, obviously. <laughs> we're, we're in this uh, transitional time globally. Mm -hmm. And certainly we're seeing a lot of effects on our health and, and the way humans are relating to health. We're seeing this on all different levels globally. Given all that going on and everything that you see in your experience, what do you sense about the coming decade? And how has it been for you to enter this era after having you know, known Ra's teaching for so long and, and everything that he shared about 2027 and, and the changes we would be going through. What has this experience been like for you to have that knowledge for so many years and now coming into this time and seeing these things unfold? Yeah, I mean, uh, he was deeply uh, starting to explore 2027 in 2002. Yeah, he was always talking about it, but the very first course um, where he even went down to the to the Aaron, yeah, which we have now at Brahma's Long Night, uh, was in December 2002 in Vienna. And I was quite shocked at <laughs> what he was talking about, you know, the raves. And I said, yeah, nice fairy tale, but um, <laughs> no. But at the other hand, because I had that experience with voodoo, I was deeply uh, interested in and I was fascinating but still I couldn't believe it and then he did all the teachings and um, of course you could see that what he was teaching I mean the precursors to that mutation you see it everywhere and I could uh, well remember when I did the um, Rave New Year forecast in for 2019 I realized that was um, not seven years, but it was a little bit more than seven years before. I could see something's going to happen in that year. I didn't know what. Yeah, And for me, it became more clear when I did the Ravenry year forecast for 2020. Then I realized, oops, there was something happening last year, which will become obvious this year. And then, of course, I knew that we have seven years, the last seven years for 2020. And I did the, the forecast in 2019 in December in Taiwan. So there was nothing about uh, the pandemic. There was nothing there. Yeah? In Taiwan, they didn't, they didn't realize that something was happening already in November yeah, at Wuhan. Nobody knew that. And I had the feeling there's something really changing. And uh, after the talk, um, the organizer told me, Andrea, you can't depress 500 people. You can't do that. And I said, sorry, um, I'm just telling you what I see here. And I said, if you don't like it, what I'm doing, I'm not going to do it. 
again. I mean, that's it. Three months later, the organizer came to me and said, Andrea, I really have to apologize. You're totally correct. And I was uh, already with my, with my open throat. Sometimes I say things and I was wondering, <laughs> why did I say that? And then I realized that I was really, in a way, seeing something happen that was then called the pandemic, COVID-19. And by the way, how I see it, what happened now in the last two years and what's going to happen uh, this year, this is just preparation time. Yeah. I mean, I always say, yeah, it's really heavy to go through that pandemic. Now having war in Europe, I mean, that's a catastrophe. But I'm always saying to my students, to be honest, the forces are nice to us. They're just preparing what will come. Imagine if the forces won't prepare us in these seven years. Yeah, that would be really something that maybe most of humanity having really serious problems. So now we're getting little by little, one catastrophe after the next. We get adjusted with masks. We get adjusted having wars. We're having serious problems, financial problems. So that's the preparation what's coming. And I know people look at me as if I would be nuts, but this is the feeling that I have. Yeah. It's something that we get adjusted now, and that's the preparation time, seven years. And it was really perfect with the pandemic. Yeah, It was exactly seven years to our mutation where really a very serious event started. And the more I'm going to look into what's going to happen, looking at the transits, I mean, Ra was absolutely correct what he was talking about. And by the way, he said, and I don't know whether it was in his teachings or just a side comment of him in one of his breaks. He said, by the way, um, we were going to have a huge uh, refugee movement in 2015. And you know what happened? You had all these problems with Syria and we have millions of refugees from, uh, from Africa. Because that stayed in my mind with me. When I recognized that, I said, yeah, Ra is 100% correct. 100%. And there's always one thing that we need to see here. And that's, we're going to look at 2027 and changing of the background frequency from the cross of planning from this area. So there might be a lot of things that won't seem accurate when we are in 2027, because we were not there yet. And we could only see it from the perspective of, of the cross of planning. But I guess Rob was not telling a fairy tale. Sorry to say that. I think that's pretty common when a lot of people hear about 2027 or hear about the raves or some of the things that Ra was describing. It sounds like fantastical or science fiction. And then at a certain point, you realize it kind of clicks or lands like, wait, this is actually happening. This is happening. And then maybe it's like you say, it's it's kind of like that analogy of throwing a frog into a boiling pot of water. The frog's going to be shocked and jump out. But we're kind of in this process where we're, it's slowly simmering and kind of leading us into this transition. And you kind of got to stop to look around and see like, okay, the signs are there. The writing's on the wall. And, and here we're just kind of being led into something. It raises the question for me of just how much of all of this is the evolution through the program or of the program kind of seems like all of it is on some level, like how could it not be? Yeah. And for me as a geneticist, you know, when you hear the description of Ra and 
how the rays would be different to humans. I mean, this is a massive, massive genetic mutation. And I was always wondering, how can that happen? Only a couple of events that can change the genetics so deeply. Radiation, chemistry. Hmm? So what we have now, and of course, everybody might think about that I'm one of these conspiracy guys. But what we know that what we have as a vaccine today, uh, there's always the chance that you have genetic alteration, even if they say, no, it's not going to happen. I mean, we have very, very old genetic information of retroviruses in our gene pool. And retroviruses can, in a way, and that, that's what the HIV virus does, um, you have an RNA and it will be transcribed into DNA and then it can be incorporated into the genetic information of a cell. So that can always happen. So with, with all the vaccines, there's one possibility uh, to create such mutations. And by the way, we never know how this war is going to end up. You never know whether there would be somewhere an atomic bomb yeah, where, you know, we all get uh, heavy radiation and we might not survive it. I mean, I'm always uh, with my third line, you know, very pessimistic. But in order to see it happen, such a vast mutation, there needs to be uh, the possibility that the genetic material can alter that much. And of course, it could be the vaccine, it could be radiation, and it could be even chemicals. We never know. Yeah. I was always asking myself, how can that happen? Now with the vaccines, it said, okay, yeah, that could be one of the possibilities. Yeah? When you have the transcription and it will be integrated somewhere in the DNA and a little bit of an alteration, we know that. If one base is changed in a certain area, we have uh, this uh, cystic fibrosis in children. Yeah? So even one base exchange can really make a, a vast difference. So that can work its way out, yeah? It's just a speculation of a geneticist, and uh, I guess many would think I'm one of these conspiracy uh, uh, women right now. That's okay for me, but in a way, as a geneticist, you have to think about it. Mm -hmm. How could that happen, what Ra is describing? It's massive. It's not just a little genetic alteration, it's massive. Yeah? I love that point that you're making. Because I, the same sense, when you first read some of these predictions that he made, it really does sound like science fiction horror. But then you see some of these things unfolding and it, it's shocking, but it's also, I don't know what to say about it. It's, I feel like it can give us a view that takes us out of all of this sort of polarized debate about what's right and wrong. And to actually be able to step back and see, wow, we actually are all in this together on some level, just experiencing this program unfolding and no choice. Absolutely, no choice. So looking forward and kind of moving into 2027 and seeing how things are evolving and changing in our world, it seems like human design came in, if I could put some sort of reason on it, and it's always looked like to me, it came into the world at this time to help us through this transition. It's giving us strategy and authority. It's giving us our design. That, to me, seems more and more just indispensable in the world that we're living in today. Absolutely correct. Ra always said this is end knowledge. 
So when we look at what is called the global cycles and this round of civilization, we are at the end of it. I mean, we just have 1,300 and a couple more years to go in contrast to 19,000 years. When we look at the ice moon, this is the shutdown mechanism of the body before you're going to die. There are always stages there where you get, let's say, the last insights. Yeah, where you get really the last information when you're consciously participating. And for me, human design is this last insight for us humans, this last chance that we have in a dying species. I mean, we just have 1,300 years to go. And it came in at the perfect time, really. And for me, always, I'm getting a little bit sad. When Ra was talking about, you know, the human design wave, when Pluto was in 34, that was very, very early. And he was always waiting for the wave. And he never got the feeling of a wave. This is something that I've seen. And I don't know where, how you feel it over there. But since we entered the seven years prior to 2027, there was the wave starting. Yes, so many people got interested. I have so many bookings. I, I can't uh, work on every booking. It's impossible. Yeah, so the wave is on now. And I, I guess it needed such a long time until everybody is prepared who is in human design that has its proper education so that we can deal with the wave. Just imagine just having a handful of analysts worldwide and then you have the wave, you can't cope with it. Nowadays, we have so many analysts and so many teachers that when the wave is on, we can deal with it and we can help people. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. I didn't. I never really thought about it like that. But yeah. Mm -hmm. So we needed such a long time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, we're we're grateful to be in it with you. Thank you for spending time with us today and sharing your your story and your your awareness. It's it's a real gift. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having the opportunity to share something what I've experienced over twenty five years of human design. And I appreciate, uh, you know, the work you're doing with your teaching and the classes that we've had together. I've really enjoyed it. And it's been a real treat for me to work with you and, and your depth of knowledge and, and time and all this. So thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. I know you're out there somewhere. Thank you for listening to the Human Design Collective podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please review us and share. You can find us at humandesigncollective.com and explore our course and workshop offerings at courses.humandesigncollective.com. Music for the Human Design Collective podcast is courtesy of Anders Parker. For more information, see the show notes. And please stay tuned for upcoming episodes on the same channel. Hey.